The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Today's scripture reading will be from Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. You can find it on page 808 in the Bibles in the pew back in front of you. If you currently don't have a Bible today and you would like one, please feel free to take it with you as a gift from Park Church. We're on page 808, Luke chapter 5, 15. But now even more, the report about him went abroad. The great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning. Did you get to that scripture passage yet? Did you make get there in your Bible? She's already done. Uh, good morning. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. Uh, so grateful that you did join us today. Uh, I want to say welcome to everybody, but particularly, again, those that are newer to our church family, I want to say welcome to you. Um, it's always a gift to us when people come uh, to worship with us as a community. We are more, we'll say this often, we're more than a Sunday gathering. Gathering together as the people of God is really important to us. It's been important for the people of God throughout history, throughout the ages, as we get to worship God together, get to worship Jesus for who he is and what he's done, get to learn from his word together, get to grow together. That's important, but we're more than a Sunday gathering. We gather throughout the week to live life in community, to love and serve our city uh, in different ways and different fashions. And so if you're interested in more information about who we are, the mission God's given us in Denver, or how to get involved in our community, right after the service, there's a meeting that's designed for you uh, in the back room over there. It says new here. We take about 10 minutes to get to know you a little bit and help you find some more ways to get involved in our church family. So we'd love to get to know you right after the service. Um, before we dive in, I want to kind of share with you a little bit about where we're headed, uh, where we're at, where we're headed over the next, not just the next four weeks, but this fall. Uh, we just wrapped up our second to last Christ in the Psalms summer. Uh, this past week with Psalm 139, we'll finish Christ in the Psalms uh, next summer uh, with 140 through 150. And so that's an exciting time. You can be excited about that. Um, still hang out in the Psalms. We want those Psalms to form us all year round. We just take time to spend time in them together uh, throughout the summertime. What we'll do right now for the next four weeks, and we'll kind of launch a theme for us for the whole fall, is focus on a particular aspect of what it looks like to follow Jesus, uh, to be a disciple. After this series, uh, we'll jump into another book of the Bible that we'll work through slowly. Uh, that's kind of our normal diet as a church as we normally work through books of the Bible. Uh, but we take time in January and in August just to slow down and look at a particular theme of what it looks like to grow as a disciple of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus. And we highlight that theme and it gives us some kind of areas to focus on as a church as we're working through growing as disciples together uh, throughout this season. And so that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, this one will be on the theme of prayer. The book that will start in five weeks uh, will be the book of Ecclesiastes, which I'm so pumped about. If you've never read Ecclesiastes, you should read it. It's going to weird you out, disorient you. You're going to wonder why it's in the Bible. And then we'll spend 12 weeks sorting through that together. Um, and so that's where we're headed this fall. I want to I pause for a second and tee up a little bit more about this series. Uh, you'll notice the artwork around the room. It's beautiful artwork by Seth Coulter, who's here in the room with us. Uh, this artwork is designed to really help draw our attention with our eyes to the, the beauty of how God has called us to grow as disciples. That as a church, the way we talk about being a disciple is that somebody who's been reconciled to God by grace and is learning over time to be with Jesus and to follow his way of life. Learning how to be with him. When Jesus invited somebody like Matthew to stop kind of participating in the oppression of his people by partnering with Rome and the tax system, said, leave that, follow me. Matthew left that, he followed him. That was an invitation to discipleship. That was a gracious invitation. He didn't say he had to do anything. He just had to turn from the way he was living his life to follow Jesus. And the rest of his life, Matthew is learning 
to be with Jesus, to stay near him and to listen to him and to watch him and to experience him, to see his grace and his love and forgiveness and nearness, but also to learn how Jesus lived, to actually follow the life of Jesus as the human par excellence, the perfect human. Matthew is watching and listening to Jesus, learning what it means to be human from Jesus. And so what we're doing as a church with our mission to make disciples is we want people to be reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that Jesus laid down his life on the cross to die for our sin, to bring forgiveness and atonement, to reconcile us to God. But that reconciliation isn't the end of the story. The reconciliation is the environment in which God heals, redeems, and transforms us to be who we are designed to be as humans. He's actually restoring us progressively through the power of the Spirit and the work of Christ to be who he designed us to be. And so we're spending time as a church uh, to focus on different elements of being with Jesus and following his way, of li- uh, his way of life. And the work that Seth has done is kind of teeing up that whole long-term series for us. So we'll circle back to this artwork, different images and themes as it creates and kind of shapes your own imagination as you start looking at the pictures of what does this represent and what does that represent. We have more information that'll be available to you about what those different images represent, but also let it shape your own imagination in your own eyes as you reflect on the beauty that is around us. And so that's what we're doing today. We're beginning this series about being with Jesus. What does it look like to be with Jesus through the avenue of what people have historically called prayer? What does it look like to be with Jesus, to experience communion with God through prayer? And so that's where we're going this morning. Uh, We don't want to just talk about prayer. We want to be people that grow as a people of prayer. And so we just want to begin even now acknowledging God is with us here and now. Jesus said, I'm with you always, all the way to the end. So let's acknowledge him. Let's ask him to work in our hearts to help us grow as people that commune with God as a practice in our daily lives. So let's pray together. Um, Jesus, we are so thankful uh, that you're here with us. I pray even now uh, in these moments that you would help us to settle in our own heart and to give attention to your presence. You see us. You see us more clearly than we could ever see ourselves. You know us. You know when we sit down and we get up, you discern our thoughts from, from afar. You see our motives and our fears. You see our emotions and our actions. You see our thoughts. And in wonder upon wonder, you love us. While we were still sinners, you chased after us. In love, as a demonstration of the love of God, you pursued us. You, you laid down your life for us. And through your spirit, you're chasing us down with your goodness and your mercy all the days of our life that we could know your love. Would you help us to experience that more fully, more beautifully, more honestly today? And would you create in us a culture, an environment of communion with you? We wouldn't just be people who talk about you, who learn about you, and do things for you, but we would be people who have cultivated friendship with God. And so would you work to do that among us here and now today through the kind of weakness of our own agency and our own interactions and words, all these limits we have, would your supernatural power bring life and healing and transformation into this place today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you're a football fan or not, but football season is getting going right now. Anybody a football fan? Anybody a football fan? All right. All right. So this last week, football season kicked off, kind of, kind of. In my opinion, preseason just doesn't count. I'm a big football fan. But preseason doesn't count. The, the games mean nothing. They prove nothing. They demonstrate nothing. Feels like whatever. Do the preseason thing. But there was one headline from this past week, actually from yesterday, that caught my mind. And it was about a fourth and one stop from the Bills against the Colts in the first quarter of yesterday's game. And the reason why that headline caught my attention is because that fourth and one stop by the Bills against the Colts in the first quarter was by a safety named Damar Hamlin. If you remember the name DeMar Hamlin, it's because DeMar Hamlin's name and story was all over the news in January of this year, when in week 17 of the NFL's regular season, DeMar Hamlin in the first quarter made a tackle 
and he stood up after that tackle, and then he collapsed on the field in front of millions of viewers experiencing cardiac arrest. It was a devastating thing. If you're watching the game, you just remember the emotions we were feeling watching the players and the friends who had seen DeMar Hamlin experience cardiac arrest. They administered CPR for several minutes on the field in front of a viewing audience, in front of the players and the friends and the family members. It was a devastating, devastating scene. And and the scene was was overwhelming. It, It was emotional. And the story of him experiencing healing and restoration to be back the next season, in preseason, on the field again. It's a really powerful story of recovery. Uh, it's a powerful story of a, a, lot, a lot of different things you could take away from it. But what fascinated me, or one of the things that at least fascinated me when I was thinking about it yesterday, is just remembering what happened when DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field. And it's basically the whole nation, anybody who was connected to the, the sports world, started either praying or calling for prayer. It was everywhere, all over Twitter or X, uh, that, that's weird. Um, all over Twitter, everybody, I mean, football players, basketball players, tennis players, organizations, sports teams, calling for prayer, saying we're praying, talking about praying, asking everybody to, to pray for DeMar, pray for DeMar. It was everywhere on, on NFL Live, an ESPN program. Uh, Dan Orlovsky prayed on air, just like pause. Hey, we're telling everybody to pray or we're saying pray. I just need to, I'm just going to pray. He prayed on air. All this kind of like positive feedback, honestly, about him just praying on air. Uh, prayer, like the, the impulse of humanity in the face of watching this catastrophic, devastating moment was to pray. In a, in a world and a culture that's increasingly secularized, we're pushing God out to the margins and pushing God away from our own experience. In this kind of moment of this kind of devastating catastrophe where we have no control, no agency, no ability to fix anything or to do anything, what do we do now? And the human impulse, not just the Christian impulse, the human impulse was to turn to something or someone outside of themselves that may or may not be able to do something about it. And that was prayer. Prayer. It's not just a Christian thing. It's a human thing. Prayer is a part of all the stories. And, and we don't know where everybody was directing their prayers. We know that there are Muslims calling people to pray and in their mind pray to Allah. There are Buddhists who practice prayer and prayer as a meditative practice through which they experience detachment from the cares and anxieties of this world. You have people, part of Hinduism, that experience prayer, verbal prayer, physical prayer of different kinds uh, to different forms of deity. You have people that are part of a Wiccan religion that pray to the mother goddess earth. You you have all these kinds of prayer. There are people that are praying and in their mind prayer is positive energy unleashed into the universe to do something in this universe that has some kind of energy. For some people, prayer is more of a psychological experience of actually centering yourself away from the anxieties and fears, whether or not there's any personal deity that would do any action kind of at the whim of or at the request of human beings. Many people would doubt, but we're kind of calling these things prayer. And prayer has been a part of every major religion. Muslims pray five times per day regularly. Jews pray at least three times a day these days, have had different prayer practices over the ages. Buddhists pray, Hindus pray, Wiccans pray, even atheists and agnostics pray. Think about this beautiful song by Sam Smith called Pray. And um, I thought about singing it for you, but my Sam Smith impersonation is not not great. I just can't sing anyways, but his song is incredible. Here's what he says. Again, uh, semi-agnostic, very kind of like secular life uh, popular artist says this. I'm young and I'm foolish. I've made bad decisions. I block out the news. I turn my back on religion. I don't have no degree. I'm somewhat, somewhat naive. I've made it this far on my own. But lately, that shit ain't be getting me higher. I lift up my head and the world is on fire. There's dread in my heart and fear in my bones, and I just don't know what to say. Maybe I'll pray. Pray. Maybe I'll pray. I've never believed in you, no, but I'm going to pray. You won't find me in church, no. Reading the Bible, no. But I'm still here and I'm still your disciple. I'm down on my knees and I'm begging you, please. I'm broken, alone, and afraid. Maybe I'll pray. I'm not a saint. I'm more of a sinner. I don't want to lose, but I fear for the winners. What I tried to explain, the words ran away. 
That's why I am stood here today and I'm gonna pray. And then this bridge, won't you call me? Can we have a one-on-one, please? Let's talk about freedom. Everyone prays in the end. Everyone prays in the end. There is a human impulse to pray. It's all around us, it's in you, it's in the human experience. It's in the human experience. Where does that impulse come from? Did some religion make it up or is it something that is fundamental to the human experience? And I would contend that it is fundamental to the human experience. What we spend a lot of our lives trying to do, especially in the kind of a increasingly secular age, is we try to push the, the knowledge of God, the acknowledgement of his existence, and our dependence on him as creatures, we try to push it away from the center of our experience towards the margins. And we all use different means and mechanisms to do that. Most of us in a kind of semi-affluent Western world have come to trust more in ourselves and our own ability to hold the world together, to accomplish our own agenda, to move ourselves forward, to push forward in our life according to our own agenda by our own power. But when we hit those moments where we are broken, alone, and afraid, when we hit those moments where life has spiraled out of our control, we start thinking, maybe, maybe I'll pray. And so what we want to talk about today is not prayer as this sort of like... Um, survey of world religions and how different world religions have talked about, we're going to talk about prayer as disciples of Jesus. What does Jesus teach us about prayer? And good thing for us, Jesus is a bit of a prayer guru. Uh, Knew a lot about it, was pretty good at it, talked a lot about it. And when Christians have thought about what it means to pray, what we learned is we've learned to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. The way that Jesus prayed was distinct and profound and has shaped the people of God for centuries. And so what I want to do is just highlight this very short passage from Luke uh, chapter 5. We'll talk about a couple other passages on our way through and unpack just a few elements of this. And then we'll talk really practically about how do we become a people of prayer? What does this look like to understand the obstacles that are in our way? and what it looks like to push through those obstacles to make room in our life for communion with God? And so here's the passage. This is from, again, uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Uh, Jesus has been busy healing a lot of people, doing incredible things. He just healed the guy and told the guy not to tell anybody about it, but the guy went ahead and told everybody about it. News is spreading. Jesus is getting lots of attention. Hype is growing. Lots of followers. The crowd is looming. And so it says this. Yet the news about him spread all the more. So that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So the news about Jesus is growing. He's doing this ministry. John Pedersen at the, um, at the men's retreat uh, this past weekend. Some of the men are still on that retreat making their way back today. But he was talking about uh, this passage or passages, a passage like it in, in Mark and talked about Jesus being the most intentional, purposeful, productive human in the history of the world. And if we were to think that there was ever a time to stay busy and active and doing things for the kingdom, it would have been if Jesus knew he had three years to basically get this kingdom mission moving, it would have been like, do it, heal the people, like teach the people, be there for the people, care for the people, like show them your, your, your glory and your goodness and unleash them in this movement. And Jesus, when there are lines of people saying, heal me, teach me, care for me, answer my questions, show me how to live. There are times often that in the Greek here, it's, he would regularly take time. This is a part of his daily habit, this practice. He would often take time to get away to lonely places, it says in the NIV, or desolate places, it says in the ESV. The word is eremos. We'll talk about that again later. But these places away from people. He would push away from people, push away from the needs and the demands of life in his world, and his culture, with his very particular vocation. He would push away from those to create time alone with God. It was a part of his regular practice. It's how he lived. And it brings us, again, to a few observations just want to draw attention to. And the first one's simply this, that we were made for communion with God. We are made for it. Human beings were made for communion with God. Uh, prayer in our, in our kind of experience often makes its way into our life in the midst of crises. And that's not anything less than Prayer. When you're experiencing a crisis in your life and you cry out to either God or to whatever you're crying out to in crisis, that, that, that is a form of prayer. 
You're, you're crying out. You're crying out to something outside of you, someone outside of you. And in the Christian experience, for the people of God throughout history, the people of Israel, crying out to God in the midst of crises is a very healthy thing to do. It's what you ought to do. But prayer is more than a sort of crisis response mechanism. It's more than that. You are made to experience communion with God as a human being. We, we talk about the story of God often. In the story of God, we, we learn in the, in the garden that God created humanity to experience communion with him, to, to be united to him in a relationship and to enjoy that relationship. There's passages that talk about in Genesis chapter two that God was walking in the cool of the garden. This idea of God with humanity, a real friendship, a closeness, a proximity, a nearness, like a real relationship, a real relationship. And we know from that story that when humans pushed away from the authority of God, rejected him, and attempted to build life on their own terms with the deceptive voice of the enemy, beckoning them and calling for them to reject the authority of God, to live life on their own terms, to chase after joy and life uh, in their own way against the reign of God, it led to a separation of that relationship. The rest of the biblical story is about what God is doing through Jesus by the power of the Spirit to reconcile that relationship. And when we talk about that reconciled relationship, we're talking about union with God. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's what baptism signifies, is union with him. That you were separated, but that person that ran away from Jesus and rejected his authority in this way of sin and chasing your life on your own terms, that person is saying, that person is crucified with Christ. I'm trusting in his death and his atonement for me to, to forgive me and wash me of this sin. And this new life is a life of united with my maker, reconciled to God by grace through faith, and that is union with God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And like a marriage ceremony has happened, like you're now in covenant relationship with God. That's a position, that's a fact, that's objective. Through faith in Christ, because of his grace and what he's done, you can be reconciled to God positionally, experiencing union with him. But to enjoy that union, to actually live in that relationship, that's communion with God, to actually commune with him. And so you can be positionally experiencing union with God. You're a part of the covenant people of God, reconciled to God by grace through faith. But you cannot be experiencing intimate communion with him. In the same way that you could be positionally married, but have a fractured and strained marriage. The fracture and strain on your marriage doesn't mean you're not married, but it does mean something about your experience of joy and intimacy in that relationship. And so when Jesus laid down his life to reconcile us to God, we can be brought into that relationship, our sin atoned for and forgiven, brought into a relationship with God. And now it is the practice of daily life to learn how to walk in that relationship, to experience it. And what we call that is communion, to experience communion with God, to actually experience relational intimacy with your maker through the work of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And we were made for this. And so when human beings live their life trying to push away from their maker and create their own life on their own terms, according to their own agenda, for their own purposes, and they're experiencing separation, there is still something in the human soul when life spirals out of control that knows its maker, that like knows that it was made to be in relationship with God and something that breaks down this world I'm trying to build, the life I'm trying to achieve, the relationships I'm trying to secure, the financial situation I'm trying to have is finally breaking down and I finally acknowledge I need something outside of myself and that's that heart to pray because humans were made for communion with God. You were made for it. And so here's an incredible, uh, incredible book by a guy named Paul Miller. It's called The Praying Life. I'll quote this a couple times. And here's how he defines prayer. Prayer is simply the medium through which we experience and connect with God. It's simply the medium through which we experience and connect with God. Does that include a crisis prayer? 100%. It's prayer. But it also includes just being still before him and paying attention to his presence. It includes things like search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. It includes listening. God, is there anything you want to speak to me? Anything you want to do in my life? Anything you want to call me into? It includes surrendering. It is simply the medium through which we experience and connect with God. So what prayer is. And it's different than crisis prayer. This is Tim Keller in his book, Prayer. Every time I think about Tim Keller, I want to cry a little bit because he recently passed away. Um, his book on prayer 
Uh, it's, it's different than most Keller books. I love all Keller books. This is essentially like a historical survey of how different people have approached prayer. And so he just quotes anybody and everybody all over the place. It's really, really a, a profound uh, and helpful work. Uh, but if you want to hear how different people have approached prayer and talked about prayer throughout the ages, it's an excellent resource. Here's what he said in talking about this idea of experiencing prayer as communion with God, the Father in particular. He says this, Galatians 4, 6 through 7 says that the Spirit leads us to call out passionately to God as our loving Father. Paul refers to this experience as knowing God in Galatians 4, 8. That's the ground motive of Spirit-directed, Christ-mediated prayer, to simply know Him better and enjoy His presence. Do you understand that, what he's saying? That's the goal, it's to know Him better and to enjoy His presence. Consider how different this is from the normal way we use prayer. In our natural state, we pray to God to get things. We may believe in God, but our deepest hopes and happiness reside in things as in, uh, in, things, as in how successful we are or in our social relationships. We therefore pray mainly when our career or finances are in trouble or when some relationship or social status is in jeopardy. When life is going smoothly and our truest heart treasures seem safe, it does not occur to us to pray. Also, ordinarily, our prayers are not varied. They consist usually of petitions, that's asking. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. Occasionally, some confession. We'll talk about that a little this morning. If we have just done something wrong. But seldom or never do we spend sustained time adoring and praising God. In short, we have no positive inner desire to pray. We do it only when circumstances force us. Why? We know God is there, but we tend to see him as a means through which we get things to make us happy. For most of us, he has not become our happiness. We therefore pray to procure things, not to know him better. That's powerful stuff from Tim Keller. Powerful stuff. We we tend to pray to God to get things. Is there anything wrong with asking? No, it's a huge piece of what prayer is. But if prayer is merely asking, talking about cultivating a life of prayer will seem boring or trivial. I am one of the most self-reliant people I know, and that is not a good thing. That is inherently sinful and evil. So just hear, hear me clearly. I, but I, my default reaction to life is I gotta figure this out. Part of my own sin, my own struggle, shaped by my own story and my own experience of life, feeling like I'm alone in the world, and it's on me to figure it out. I got this. I can figure it out. Put it on my shoulders. We'll get there. So even asking God for things or asking anybody for things is hard for me. It's hard for me. And when I think about prayer as praying through lists of requests, that's a challenge for me. When I pray about, when I think about prayer as experiencing communion with a father who knows me and loves me and enjoys me and cares about me and wants to speak to me and meet me in the, my own emotions and spaces, now that's something I want to spend some time doing. Now it's something that's actually more inviting to me is I want to approach prayer as a relationship with God. My own story, um, even kind of after becoming a Christian, went to School uh, to become a pastor, study Bible, theology, languages, that kind of stuff, and uh, and I got really busy. Here's my here's my here's my busy inner life jar. We do this with our kids a couple years ago, and I thought it was what a profound thing. I'll do that in a sermon someday. Um, and so, thank you for the idea, <laughs> Jamie. Uh, so this is my inner life, right? You're like that's kind of gross. Exactly, right? So like. This is my inner life, and my life was like, okay, I'm going to school, uh, went to grad school, the seminary, worked a few jobs at the same time, studying, staying busy, like learning about God, going to church, working my jobs, learning how to be a husband, kind of moved to Fort Collins, Colorado, we had a baby, kind of learned dad life, busy doing stuff, planted a church in 2009, 2010, got busy doing church stuff, making disciples, equipping people, baptizing people, preaching and teaching, hosting people, having people into our house. This was my life. It was just busy. I was moving. I was, I had a lot, I had a lot going on, had a lot going on. And the idea for me in the midst of those things of experiencing like communion with God in the stillness where he sees me and knows me and what's going on in my life was very foreign to me. 
I could pray for success in some ministry thing, pray for the kingdom of God to move and to break new ground, but my life was constantly moving in this kind of a way. I was overwhelmed with the busyness of life, and it's something that we see even here in this passage as we look at and consider what what it means to actually spend time with God, communing with him. Our busy lives distract us. Here's the next observation from the passage. Unchecked busyness is an enemy of communion with God. Unchecked busyness is an enemy of communion with God. It's, it's an enemy. Unchecked busyness is an enemy of communion with God. There's this passage that we're looking at here in, in, in Luke has this, has this idea of people surrounding Jesus, Jesus moving away from that crowd and all the needs and all the ministry opportunities, incredible ministry opportunities right before him. And he moves away from all of it to get to an, a lonely place to spend time with his father in prayer because he understands that communion with the Father is who humans were made to be. Do you know that Jesus was the most dependent human being who ever lived? Does that weird you out a little bit? The most dependent human being who ever lived. He depended on the power of God through the presence of the Holy Spirit, like every human being was designed to. And so Jesus would withdraw to spend time with his Father. In the parallel passage in Mark chapter 6, it says this, and I think it's Hilarious, because this is how my prayer life tends to go uh, when I'm giving it real effort. This is Mark chapter 6, verse 30, so I'll just read it to you. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done. So he had sent them off on this mission. They came back with all the stories of incredible stuff. And so Jesus says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place, to a lonely place. Let's get away. Great, great stories. God's on the move. Awesome. You've been working hard, doing a lot. Let's get away to a lonely place, away from people so we can rest a while. For many were coming and going, Mark says, and they had no leisure even to eat. It's like people are just around him constantly, busy, 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 busy. And so they went away in a boat. They're like, we can't even get away from people. We can't even close the door. People are knocking on the door. They're ripping the roof off, lowering people down. Like, we cannot get alone. And so let's get in a boat and go across the sea. So they get in a boat and they go across Galilee, kind of the northern kind of like section of Galilee. When they arrive at the other side, guess who's there? 5,000 guys and a bunch of ladies too. And it's like a crowd. They're, they're right there. They're right there. It says this. Now many saw them going, recognized them, and ran there. So they watched Jesus hop out on the boat. They're like, eh, he's cutting across the north side of Galilee. If we run, we could be there when he lands on the other side. Um, and so they run around. They're there. And, and, and it says this. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were all like sheep without a shepherd. I love that. He sees them and he loves them. And so he teaches them and he feeds them and takes care of them and lost his time to pray. Look what it says right after that story. Verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples, after this is over, sends them off, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of, to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So you disciples, you guys get in the boat. You crowds, have a great day. And then this is what he says. And after that, after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. He's like, I'm here, I care, but I need to experience communion. There are obstacles, and there are good human people obstacles that he loved. The people weren't obstacles, but the experience of unchecked busyness was, and he overcame that because of his heart to be with the Father. It's hard to be with the Father. Now, our obstacles are often not always ministry. I can talk about like my life as a pastor and I can make all those distractions like sound good. They weren't good. And even when those distractions, even if they're good things to keep me disconnected from God, I got in a, in a personally to a place of such deep disconnection, such deep experiences of like inner chaos, chaos that I had no idea what was going on inside of me. I would be in meetings Doing, seeing God do profound things, and I would leave those meetings and feel how disconnected my heart was. All I wanted to do is go home and watch TV. Meanwhile, like doing these things that look very good, I was deeply disintegrated and disconnected from my father. But I was doing stuff, stuff you could call good things, and even in the shame that I was feeling there, I'd find ways to escape those difficulties. We push away from these things. We distract ourselves again and again, and again from the presence of God, and we don't pay attention to what's happening within us. Uh, There's this study that was done in 2008, keep that date in your mind, uh, by a man named Michael Zigarelli, and he said this. It may be the case that Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, 
and overload, which leads to, second observation, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, third observation, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, fourth observation, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, finally, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. I have lived that cycle for years of my life, and I imagine many of us have as well. And it might not look like doing pastor things, but that's just my particular vocation. Your vocation is your job, your relationships, your life, your rhythms, your commitments, your friends, your social life, your hobbies, your recreational aspirations, your, your desire to go on trips, your own media habits. We, we fill our lives with the kind of busyness that pushes God out. And with God being pushed out, we become more vulnerable to the kind of deceptive ideas that surround us in culture. We live into those ideas. God becomes more distant and we become less clear and less able to see what's happening. And if you keep doing that for a long time, you will have a, an inner life of total disconnect with God, which I've experienced. And it's a, it a, it's a scary place to be. I didn't feel it as scary because I was too distracted and busy to feel. To feel. And so I had to start getting help and working through things and realizing the depth of insecurity and shame that were even motivating the work I was doing. Why do I run away to these escape mechanisms? Why do I push away from this? Why is it hard for me to be still before God? So I'm going to ask you, if you look at your own life, your own habits, what is it for you? What are the things that create obstacles for experiencing communion with God? Just think about it for a moment. What are the things that are creating obstacles for you that you're busying yourself with? It could be your schedule, could be your commitments, could be your media habits. It's likely, almost definitely, your phone. I'm just claiming that for all of us. Lord, we confess that reality. Might be parenting, marriage, church stuff. It's not inherently wrong things. But what has filled your life as you look at your life? And think about Jesus, his life was full, and he had to create space. He, he had to move away from that obstacle and had to work to actually create intimacy with his father. He had to work to do that. I think we have to work to do that. And that's the third observation that we'll look at, is that we have to make room. You have to make room in your life for communion with God. You have to make room. And that's what Jesus did in this passage. He made room. The, the Greek word for lonely places, we can put it here on the screen, is eremos, just an adjective in the Greek New Testament, early Greek literature, describes isolated, unfrequented, abandoned, empty, and desolate places. The point is not the wilderness as such. The point is away from people. He had to get away from people. He had to get to isolated places. And for him, in his world, in his culture, he could move out to the wilderness. He could kind of move up to a mountaintop. He had to work to create that space. It's not always that case. In Matthew chapter 6, he's teaching his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount and, and a big crowd that was there. And it says this, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners and that they may be seen by others. But truly I say to you, they have received their reward. When you pray, go into your closet and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And after your father who sees, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He's basically saying you can create a lonely place in your closet. I imagine this in my closet, which is not a walk-in closet, and uh, just kind of thought like I could slowly back into the clothes, you know, and just like pull this door in front of me, you know, and it would be a lonely, desolate Eremos in my house, um, but it would, I would get overheated quickly, and uh, I, don't recommend, I don't recommend it if you don't have a walk-in closet. Uh, but it, the, the point is to find space. There's a lady named Susanna Wesley uh, who in the kind of early 1700s had 10 children, incredible woman of God. You can read stories about her, incredible, incredible story. Um, but she would, with these 10 children homeschooling all around her, she would take her apron for two hours a day, pull it over her head, and just hunker down and be with God. Kids running around, kids playing, kids doing school, kids probably getting out knives and, you know, whatever, and um, things kids do. And, uh, 
and she just would get under her apron, and the rule was you don't interrupt mom when mom's under the apron. You don't. And she would spend hours with Jesus. Um, Two of her sons were named John Wesley and Charles Wesley, men through whom God did incredible things to transform the, the fabric of Christianity in the UK and launch missionary movements all around the world. They would attest to their mom, Susanna, as a soul behind their own ministry, the one who prayed, cultivated, and fought for them. She created an eremos under an apron in her house around 10 kids. We, we think we can't. It just takes some creativity, ingenuity, and effort to create this kind of space. This is what Paul Miller said again. He says this, you don't create intimacy, you make room for it. This is true whether you're talking about your spouse, your friend, or God. You need space to be together. Efficiency, multitasking, and busyness all kill intimacy. In short, you can't get to know God on the fly. If Jesus has to pull away from people and noise in order to pray, then it makes sense that we need to as well. Like if if he wasn't just like, no, I'm just like, pray without ceasing. I'm, I'm experiencing intimacy with God all the time, perfectly all the time. I don't need that. I can like kind of talk with him as I'm doing things. That's good. He did. He did. He was one with the Father. He was intimately connected. And even Jesus wanted to create particular spaces often away from people to connect with God, to make it a rhythm and a habit. He, he made room for communion. He made room for it. What that looks like for each of us in our seasons of life is different. The way we each will frame that and approach that is, is your own situation, your own house, your own family, your own relationships, your own schedule. So to prescribe a particular thing uh, would not be helpful. But to ask the question is, what would it look like in your life, in your situation, to make room for communion with God? When you make room for communion with God, you begin to experience something. Experience something. We'll talk more about this over the coming weeks. But his nearness, healing, conviction, freedom. When you create space to, to engage with him authentically, with your true self, not some idealized version of yourself that's saying heady kind of prayers, but like with honesty, with vulnerability, with awareness about what's happening within you, what you're nervous about, anxious about, excited about. When you do that, God begins to meet you in the reality of your life and bring healing and transformation. You begin to find areas of conviction where he wants to draw attention to things, shine the the light of his love on places in your heart that he wants to free you from and heal And the more you do, the more you feel detached from and free from the anxieties and the burdens and the troubles of this world. Not not away from them and not disconnected from them, but not attached to them emotionally, where you can pay attention to the pain and the struggles and the difficulties and the cares of this world without having to carry them on your own. You can come to him. You can take his yoke. You can walk with him. You can learn how he does it. You can learn how to trust in the Father, surrender, pray, ask Rejoice, yield. You can learn these things with him. And when you do, you begin to live in step with the Spirit. And do you know what the the evidence of somebody who's living in step with the Spirit is? The, The evidence of somebody connected to the life source, the God who made them, is what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Like the evidence you're plugged into the life source, you're connected to the God of life, is is life giving things like love, joy, peace, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, kindness, self-control, faithfulness. These are the things that mark a life of someone communing with God. You can smell it. You can smell an aroma of Christ from people that have been communing with God, attached to their creator. Do they still experience chaos? Yes, but they can still have joy in chaos. They can have peace that makes no sense. Maverick City told us. You can feel these things. Like you, you can experience Joy, love, peace, freedom, gentleness. And if you start seeing in your own life frustration, anger, resentment, impatience, irritability, this is evidence that you're likely disconnected. When I feel a tightness in my chest and I start getting in my head about how that meeting went and how that person experienced me and I feel like, oh, I've got that thing coming up and I'm looking back at these interactions and I feel insecure about it, I can feel it in my body, I feel it in my chest. 
And I now know, instead of like, oh, I shouldn't be nervous about these things. I'm going to choose to not be anxious. I know that's evidence that I'm not connected. I can almost always look at my life for the past couple weeks and see a life that's wandered away from communion with God. And so rather than just like working hard to not think those things and think the right things, not think the wrong things, for me, the movement is how do I begin to reconnect and cultivate intimacy in my relationship with God? How do I step back into those spaces with honesty and let him meet me in the reality of my life? And so what I want to do is just kind of walk through something with you about what, the, what this will look like for all of us. We're trying really hard as a community. We want to unpack from God's word what it looks like to follow Jesus, but we know that just teaching about things doesn't equal transformation. We need to talk about it from God's word. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to, to enliven and enlighten our hearts to those things. We need to work it out in community, and you've got to put it into practice. You got to put it into practice. And all these things take time over the long haul of life to grow. And so we created these little guides for a way to pray. Some of you have incredible prayer lives. What a gift. We're so grateful. We're so grateful. Others of you are new or you feel stuck or you felt disconnected for a while. This is a simple, transferable model that works through the acronym PRAY, P-R-A-Y. And so it's simply this. First, want to pause to practice the presence of God. Learning to pause, to actually create space to be honest. We'll talk about that in a second. Second, to rejoice in the goodness of God, to be people that thank him for who he is and what he's done in the world. To be people who ask for your needs, the needs of others, the needs of the world, what you want to see God do in your life, in our community, friends, family, and around the world. And last, to yield. Like Jesus saying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Here's what I want. Here's what I'm asking. Here's what I'm knocking. I'm going to keep knocking. But at the end of the day, I want to surrender to your wisdom in your goodness in my life. And to be people that learn how to spend time with God in these rhythms. Is the idea to create a formula? No. Is the idea to create a rigid cast that's going to like keep you on this specific way of doing things? No. It's to create rhythms that will become a part of just the way you interact. And so for those that need a guide, we're just providing a guide. And I want to talk specifically uh, about this idea of pausing just for a moment. Just for a moment. Um, when, when we pause, and you can look at it in your guide there, um, that first section, uh, just a, a few things that have been significant for me. When I thought of prayer as like saying prayers and, uh, and praying for things on my list or praying for things I need, which, which are meaningful and good, I often could go to God to, God, show up at this service and be with this person and be with my family and do these things. But the idea of God meeting me in the reality of who I am, actually experiencing relational intimacy with him, was a disconnect. I was a soldier in the army of a king who needed things from my king, but to be the son in the arms of a father was a foreign experience for me. To be with God who just wanted to be with me and to hear how I'm doing and what I'm feeling, to meet me. And so what we're talking about here is creating space to pause and give your undivided attention to the presence of God, to remove distractions like Jesus did in the lonely places that may hinder this time with Jesus, and to find a posture that helps you to both engage, to be both engaged and relaxed. We talk about breath prayers. We'll talk about this more in time to come, but breath prayers are simply phrases you can say to redirect your attention to God in the midst of this time, phrases like, Lord, have mercy. So for me, learning to be still was a hard thing. It's a hard thing because my life was so busy that I couldn't see the stuff going on in there. I couldn't see the stuff. And there's stuff in my heart that was gross. There's shame I've been carrying my whole life. My whole life. That motivated a lot of my pastoral ministry. I still feel it at times. I'm learning to identify it. But slowing down meant I'd have to face these things. And I had this psychological resistance to being still. I had a counselor who asked me after several sessions, Gary, why don't you just create five minutes of stillness in your week this week? And I couldn't do it. I could not do it. I found something to do, things to go on, just like I couldn't do it. After several weeks of failing at creating five minutes of silence, I felt how unhealthy I clearly am. I was like, this, is, this feels dysfunctional. She's like, yeah, uh, yep. Uh, and... Uh, and had to talk with our elders about it. This is about six or seven years ago. Talk with our elders about it. And they were so sweet and showed me love and grace. Like, I don't know what's going on. I feel so disconnected. I can't be still before God. Um, and created space for me to go. I had a day one time where I went up to Golden. I've shared about this before. Went up to the mountains in Golden uh, to, by the river where Jesus hangs out, as we all know. And, um, <laughs> and so Jesus is by the river in Golden, but I was like get, trying to find him. And... Um, 
and I'd like find this spot and people would walk by and I kept moving and finally I found a spot. And as we all know, Jesus needs ambient music to show up really powerfully. But I forgot my headphones, so I got up, walked a couple miles to a Walgreens to find headphones. After about four hours of this nonsense, um, I finally was like, what the heck? And I just acknowledged, got it. I've got a problem. And I just broke down and I felt shame, so much shame. So much, I've been for years doing things, but really disconnected. And you're like, I was, a path, I, you, I was at this church seven years ago, and I'm sorry. Um, like, I'm, I'm really sorry. Um, thanks for loving me and being gracious to me as a human. Um, I, 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 really, I really did in that space begin to learn. The way Jesus met me in the honesty of my shame, my insecurities, my fears, to bring healing and love. What he reminded me of when I felt finally able to be honest about the shame I carried and the insecurities I felt and how fearful and, and depressed and anxious I was. When I finally felt free to be honest about that, the way he met me in that honesty was one of the most profound experiences of my life. And I'm learning to engage with him still around those. I'm not like past those feelings, but I'm learning how to meet with them in those spaces. And pausing is the environment where we get to lean into that. We get to slow down enough to see what's happening in your heart. Oh, there's some dead stuff in there. There's some shiny stuff in there. There's some prickly stuff in there. There's some beautiful stuff in there. God sees all of it. And when I can finally pay attention, I can bring these things to him. And he, and he meets you with grace. Transformation is the place where grace meets shame. When, we're, when we confess our sins, when we're just honest and agree with God about the reality of what's inside of us, the dark stuff, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that's where healing happens. That's where transformation happens. That's when God starts to, to cultivate a, a closeness and an intimacy that I am learning and struggling to walk in. I'm learning and struggling. I still have weeks and months where I veer back to this kind of like self-sufficient, I got this. But I'm learning to feel it and identify it so I can turn back to him and come to him again and unload these things before him, be honest with him, meet me again, find new freedom, new hope. And this is a journey for all of us. This is just an attempt to help you along the way, along the way. And so it looks different for everybody. We're gonna show a short little video. A number of you shared um, some stories about how you experience pausing. I'm gonna show that for a second, uh, create a couple minutes of space for us to be still before God, and then we'll end our time in worship. But uh, for those that did participate in that video, I wanna say thank you. Really powerful examples of how different people have connected with God in the stillness. Yeah, uh, my favorite things are mornings. Uh, so I love to have a cup of coffee and sit outside and just be by taking deep breaths, but also by listening to worship music. If I happen to be in the car alone going somewhere, um, I try to not spend so much time taking in input, podcasts and uh, audiobooks and music, and instead just uh, stop and breathe and listen to the Lord. I don't pause. I don't do it very well, but here, um, the beauty of nature or an inspirational moment of joy sometimes like cuts across your wild pace and you just step back and feel that space and sometimes it's the opposite it's not beauty it's um, overwhelming anxiety and everything that's chaotic in my brain builds up until my computer crashes and I have to hit a reset my favorite setting is going for a nice walk in a park, on a hike. My favorite way is staring up at the clouds. I think that's the only way my, my head stops spinning and I get out of the routine and really discover what's been going on under the surface. So I've sat on the same cushion on my couch for uh, since we've owned the couch. So it's been like th three or four years and I just sit in the same place every morning and I, I really value that rhythm. I also don't touch my phone typically until I'm done with time that's like spent abiding. I'll like close the door because I live with five other roommates. <laughs> and so I'll just like take that morning time or the evening to just sit with God. Like, like closing my eyes. Closing your eyes. I do want to go to the beach. Just the weather conditions like in the beach and it's, as it blows through my ears, blows through my head, my mind, like it gives me like the opportunity to like uh, really pause and think. I'm not sure I can pause long enough to think about pausing. 
Um, there's some level of separation between us and God. Um, pausing allows an opportunity to remove those layers and to create a space where you can hear God's voice. In the midst of the pause, there's actually healing and clarity and truth and grace rather than me distracting myself, thinking that will help any anxiety. As someone who does not fit a lot of margins into their life, I think the act of pausing is also the act of creating margins in between the times of your day. For me, um, I work in a pretty stressful job, um, lots of moving things, very fast um, people's lives, sometimes in the balance and um, not figurative either. If you don't take that pause to just release and let go, then it's just going to build up. Taking a moment to pause is like, okay, God, you're bigger than this. You're greater than this. Um, I can leave it in your hands and not have to carry this weight. This week, there's this one beautiful yellow flower. In a groomed bed, it was planted at my office, but this one flower popped up by itself. It's the only yellow one you can see. I see this simple thing that doesn't water itself, it doesn't choose, it doesn't groom itself, but it's stunning. And I'm just reminded that that is, that is the goodness of God. I love, I love that video, and thanks to those who participated in it. You hear for different people the ways God meets them. You hear honesty about struggles. You hear the difficulty and the motive. What, what you see is a taste of a community that's learning. We're learning. We're learning to slow down, to give attention, to practice the presence of God. You're not alone in the journey. We're in it together, and it's going to look different for each of us. Our invitation as a community is to pursue this together. We're trying to follow Jesus, to learn to follow him together. And so our, our encouragement would be create space, if you're willing to, this week, to slow down and pray. Whether it's through this model or a different model, if you're in a position in life where like, you can't even say words to God, there are incredible guides like Lectio 365, which is an app that just walks you through kind of an audio version of the same sort of acronym and approach to prayer. If that's helpful for you, there are seasons of life, years of my life, where I needed like prayer guides to help me as I was seeking to reconnect and re-kind of kindle affection and connection with God. Uh, but our encouragement would be to lean into these things together. Uh, as you do, you will begin to see stuff in your heart, and you get to bring that to Jesus with honesty. That's what confession is. It's just agreeing with God about reality. Here's what's real. Sometimes what's real is dark, sinful stuff. Sometimes what's real is emotions and fears and anxieties and longings. I'm saying, God, this is where I'm at. And to create that kind of a space in your life to connect with God in that, the way that God meets you to bring healing and hope and love is beautiful. And you begin to step into who you're made to be. Human beings that have been reconciled to God by grace and are learning now to be with him, to be with him and to become like him, to follow his way of life as a community. And that's what we get to do together. So we have this prayer guide for you. We also have some books in the back. If you want to kind of go deeper into it, we have a book called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools by Tyler Staten. Phenomenal book um, that we have available back in the back for $10, uh, which is reduced price if, if it helps you out to get that, if you want to go deeper into it. But our encouragement is less to talk about prayer, more to be a community that prays. And so what I want to do right now is um, just invite the band to go ahead and make their way up. And as they do, I want to give us just a moment to be still before God, uh, to calm our own hearts. And as you think about your relationship with him and be still for a minute, what I would encourage you to do is take a few deep breaths, get in a position, a posture where you feel comfortable and engaged, take a few deep breaths and, and explore this question. God, you're here. Where am I? Where am I? God, you're here. Where am I? And see how he meets you in that space, and we'll celebrate communion together.
Jesus, you are with us, even when we have a hard time seeing you. Your steadfast love endures forever, even when we don't feel it. And so would you help us learn to give attention to your presence, where our minds and our hearts are so cluttered with what's coming on later up today, what's happening after the service, the the things that are happening around us. Would you help us learn to create lonely places, to pay attention to what's happening within us and to bring our true selves, our inner lives to you, our feelings to you, our longings to you, our sin to you, our hope to you. And would you meet us in this space? Would you help us to be patient with the journey that we're practicing? For some people, a new kind of a practice. For some people, have been walking this journey for a long time. Would you help us to be gracious with ourselves and with one another that we learn to be with you, Jesus? And pray you'd cultivate in our community a church that walks with you imperfectly, but regularly creates space in our life to commune with you, our creator, our king, our Redeemer and our friend. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.